0: This is American
1: History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, University of Maryland-Baltimore County Professor William Blake teaches a class about New Deal-era politics and the role of public opinion on issues such as court packing and executive power. We are going to be talking about the first two chapters of my book manuscript um, today, Uh, which looks at the role that public opinion played during uh, the New Deal and specifically the constitutional controversies of the New Deal. And I think it's worth telling you uh, one thing about why I am not writing this book. Uh, Court packing has gotten back in the news, both during the uh, Democratic primary season when Iowa caucus uh, winner uh, Pete Buttigieg endorsed court packing, And now it's back in the news again uh, in the general election following the passing of Justice Ginsburg. I'm not writing this book um, because court packing is back in the news. I have always been interested in the New Deal. I think it is a constitutionally significant era in our history and doesn't receive quite as much attention as it deserves on that front. And within New Deal scholarship, um, there has not nearly been enough attention paid to the role that uh, the public played in shaping some of those constitutional developments. So that's why I'm writing the book. Uh, and uh, I want to tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, so we may as well get started with the PowerPoint. So let's uh, talk a little bit more about the New Deal and uh, uh, con- the Constitution and pu- the role public opinion played. I wanna do a couple of things um, today. First, I want to sort of recap the standard um, history of the New Deal and discussions of the Constitution that took place during it. The next thing I wanna do is to bring public opinion back into this uh, narrative. Uh, And then we have to understand the sort of complexity uh, of the changes that are happening during the New Deal from a constitutional perspective because it's not just about the federal government growing in power and doing things that it didn't used to be able to do. It also involved challenges to the traditional ways of separating powers across the three branches of government. And then finally, I do want to, I think there are some important lessons, uh, from the 1930s that we should be aware of, um, today. Uh, and so we will wrap up with a discussion uh, of that. So, um, let's begin with a sort of standard uh, account of uh, the New Deal and um, what, what, if anything, the Constitution played uh, during that time. Uh, obviously, a major turning point was the 1932 election, uh, which you see uh, represented here uh, in this uh, uh, political cartoon where it's sort of a revolving door. President Hoover is on his way out. Uh, and President Roosevelt, with his trademark smile, is coming in. We don't really know what the new deal is because he has it safely tucked away in his uh, briefcase. And he walks in uh, to a very crowded desk with a number of problems. And I really like the fact that um, in the mix of the different problems that needs to be solved is to make sure that uh, whatever solutions uh, are determined, are ones that uh, still uphold the Constitution of the United States. Next um, thing that we're probably all familiar with is that the New Deal resulted in the creation of uh, many new laws and government programs. Some of them were derisively referred to as uh, alphabet soup agencies uh, based on their acronyms, and as you see um, this is a campaign poster from when President Roosevelt was running for a third term in 1940. And you can see some of those alphabet soup agencies listed there. Uh, the CCC was the um, uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. The WPA was the Works Progress Administration. And the PWA was the Public Works Administration. Uh, and uh, it was a uh, dramatic Uh, amount of legislation that was um, passed, Uh, the scope of the problem um, was, uh, you know, very dire. Um, And so um, I I like the fact that this um, poster sort of displays, um, you know, reestablishing the foundation of American democracy by rebuilding all these steps up to the Capitol. Um, It's a fairly Herculean task, and of course, it's being performed by someone with um, a disability. Uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, And this wasn't just about solving problems created by the Great Depression. This was, as the poster indicates off to the left, this was about uh, preserving American democracy itself. Then another part of the standard history that we might be familiar with is court packing, where President Roosevelt uh, tried to get new seats created on the Supreme Court. Well, why would he do this? Well, uh, he did not have very good luck pleading his case before the Supreme Court in his first term between 1933 and 1936. The Supreme Court during that time uh, struck down 13 New Deal cases, and it only fully upheld one New Deal policy. So the conservatives on the Supreme Court had sort of firmly asserted themselves and their belief that the New Deal was unconstitutional, and Roosevelt had... And not had an opportunity to affect the balance on the court because there had been no appointments. Uh, in fact, he was the first president in American history to serve a full four years and not have an opportunity to appoint a justice. And so we have the very famous political cartoon here of uh, Roosevelt as a sort of deranged ship captain uh, pointing at uh, the compass. Um, and so there are a number of things here that I think are, are interesting. One is that if we uh, believe that the Constitution is our true north star guiding principle in American politics, uh, the compass which tells us which direction that is, uh, this author thinks it's only the Supreme Court can guide us into the correct constitutional direction. And Roosevelt comes along and says, well, I want to change this. And Congress um, is, uh, you know, sort of, um, instead of being a loyal lieutenant, and they had been, Congress had been just voting for every New Deal um, policy request that Roosevelt had made. And here's the time when they um, stand up for themselves because they think that uh, Roosevelt has crossed a line. Um, At the start of Roosevelt's second term in the beginning of 1937, Roosevelt um, surprises everyone. He had not consulted with Congress before making this announcement, uh, but he wanted six new seats added to the Supreme Court. Now, how is this possible? Well, because the Constitution allows Congress to set the size of the court seats, uh, the, the number of seats on the court has been as small as five at the end of the John Adams administration, and as large as ten uh, during uh, just immediately after the Civil War. Nine is the norm, um, and has, uh, it's been it was nine for a while before the Civil War, and it's been nine uh, mostly after the Civil War too. Um, But Congress could change it at any point. Uh, So one other thing uh, before we move on, um, notice the way that this controversy is being portrayed in the cartoon. You have representatives of each of the three branches of government. In other words, the only people that this author thinks that matter in terms of this controversy over court packing are elected officials. Nowhere in this cartoon is public opinion on display. And of course, Congress does say no. For the very first time, uh, they uh, shoot down a request of President Roosevelt. It's a huge defeat. Um, And then the other thing uh, that helped uh, Congress uh, find the the courage to stand up to Roosevelt and defeat court packing was that the Supreme Court um, changed its mind. It went from largely striking down New Deal policies as unconstitutional to largely upholding them. And this happened in uh, two cases in the beginning of 1937, one involving a minimum wage law for women in March 1937. The other was the so-called Wagner Act, uh, and that case was handed down in early April. The Wagner Act was the National Labor Relations Act, the first time the federal government had uh, provided protection for workers who wanted to organize into labor unions and collectively bargain uh, with uh, management. And so what happened in those two cases was uh, that two of the swing justices on the court, Justice Owen Roberts, uh, no relation to the current Chief Justice John Roberts, um, and then the other swing um, justice was uh, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes. Um, They went from uh, voting with the conservative bloc to voting with the liberal bloc, and they were trying to send a signal to Roosevelt that there was no need for court packing because um, there were... There wasn't going to be uh, any lingering controversy over the constitutionality of the Supreme Court. And this uh, swing that the court made um, was called at the time uh, the switch in time uh, that saved nine. And it's a sort of play on the bit of homespun uh wisdom that you may have heard of: that a stitch in time saves nine. That when you've got clothing that is um starting to uh get worn down, uh it's better to um, have, like, do one stitch to keep it from uh, falling apart than waiting for it to fall apart and then having to stitch it back together again. But again, um, even in that last cartoon, where all the nine justices are swinging from one way to the other, there is nothing in there uh, about public opinion. And that is largely emblematic of how historians, legal theorists and political scientists have dealt with this era in our history too. And I want to argue that public uh, uh, opinion is the missing ingredient that really explains why Roosevelt succeeded some of the time in changing uh, constitutional norms, um, but did not succeed at other points during his presidency. And uh, this is one of my favorite political cartoons. Uh, First of all, I love the idea that there could be a super Supreme Court Um, But then the way that um, the three people are portrayed here, um, I think is quite remarkable. Most of the time, we might think of uh, our leaders staring down at the people. In fact, a lot of political scientists believe that this is uh, a a good way of understanding public opinion, that most people don't uh, have the time or the Uh, capacity to figure out where they stand on a lot of complex um, policy issues. So what they do instead is they think, oh, wait a second. Uh, I am a Democrat. Joe Biden leads the Democratic Party. He's looking down on me and telling me, you know, this is uh, the kinds of things that uh, he is in favor of. And so if he's in favor of those things, then so am I. But here you have uh, Chief Justice Hughes and President Roosevelt staring up at the public. The public is in control. And uh, whatever the public says, uh, those two, one of those two people is gonna have to walk away disappointed, uh, but respect the will of the public. The other thing I I like about this cartoon is that um, there is no emotional hysteria, um, either by the politicians trying to manipulate the voters or voters, not being able to understand this. Judge John Q. Public is calmly uh, trying to do his best rationally to figure out what the implications of court packing are, not just for the constitutionality of the New Deal, but for larger constitutional principles like the independence of the judiciary. And I think that this isn't just a cute one-off cartoon. I think this actually is an accurate contemporary reflection of the nature of public debate during this time, because in this book, I'm collecting evidence of ordinary people who are writing letters to the White House, making constitutional arguments both in favor of and opposed to court packing, and you have um, ordinary people um, telling uh, pollsters um, that they think that the conflict between Roosevelt and the court should be resolved by enacting a constitutional amendment rather than court packing. Even Democrats thought a constitutional amendment was the more legitimate way to resolve this controversy compared to court packing, despite the fact that the Constitution permits Congress to change the number of seats on the court if it wants. So, um, in my book, I make three central claims about the role that public opinion played during this time. Number one, I think that ordinary people understood that the New Deal didn't just represent a change in what kinds of policies the federal government uh, enacted. It wasn't just that we went from not having a welfare state to having a welfare state. I think ordinary people understood that these changes represented a, uh, a change to the constitutional status quo. Second, I think that public opinion understood that this was a uh, complex set of changes that were occurring during the New Deal Constitutional Re- Revolution. On the one hand, uh, the federal government was trying to do more things than it had been before, uh, more things that, uh, uh, than had been constitutionally given to uh, the federal government before. But that's not just, uh, it's, it's more than just that. President Roosevelt not only wanted the federal government to do more, it wanted um, the presidency to have more power compared to the other two branches. Roosevelt challenged norms of the separation of powers. He did not have a lot of use for checks and balances. Um, and the ordinary, ordinary Americans understood that these sorts of conflicts were occurring too. And a lot of people were in favor of the federal government regulating the economy, providing for social security, but they were opposed uh, to Roosevelt taking more power uh, into the presidency. They wanted to preserve that traditional set uh, set of checks and balances. And then finally, um, most political scientists don't think that public opinion can control what the government does but I think I found evidence that the public not only was following these debates sort of passively, but they were actively helping to decide what kinds of things Roosevelt could do and what kinds of things he couldn't. So what do I mean by the uh, New Deal representing a change to the constitutional status quo? Well one of the sort of famous images that Roosevelt made in some of his early speeches was that the federal government had a responsibility to the forgotten man. And here's a cartoon uh, with the forgotten man, a, a miner, uh, who is shaking Roosevelt's hand saying, yes, you remembered me. Um, and one way to sort of understand the economic policies in the New Deal was simply a way to get out of the crisis of the Great Depression. But I think it was more than that. I think that what Roosevelt was doing uh, it, through the New Deal was to expand the definition of we the people. We the people, of course, is the first three words to the preamble of the Constitution. And it, uh, I think that Roosevelt was trying to ensure that working class Americans receive just as much consideration uh, in the doings of their government as anyone else. So how was this possible? After all, there weren't any New Deal constitutional amendments, although if I uh, move, there we go, uh, you'll notice I put in an asterisk there, um, and we'll return to that uh, notion in a little bit. So how could we think of the New Deal as representing constitutional change without these amendments? I think it involves reinterpreting the preamble to the Constitution, in a way that fundamentally changes the role of the federal government. So, for example, as we read through the goals articulated in the preamble, one of them is to ensure domestic tranquility. And one of Roosevelt's main arguments was that we need the New Deal to solve the problems of the Depression, because if the Depression doesn't end, dictatorship will follow. And so the New Deal preserved democracy by ensuring domestic tranquility. Another argument that Roosevelt made was, uh, uh, so one of the goals in the preamble is to promote the general welfare. And Roosevelt said that the best way to do that would be to uh, set up basic supports so that uh, when people fall on hard times, either through illness or old age or unemployment, that they uh, uh, are able to, um, provide for themselves and for their families. And so promoting the general welfare becomes associated with the federal government's obligation to establish a welfare state. And then Roosevelt also, in many of his speeches, tried to redefine um, liberty. And liberty is um, sprinkled throughout the Constitution. The first place it's mentioned is in the preamble that the people, we the people of the United States, in order to uh, secure the blessings of liberty, Roosevelt redefined that liberty as not just freedom from government action, but so that ordinary people have the means by which they can make decisions. Roosevelt stole this uh, line uh, from, I think it was an English judge, a necessitous man cannot be a free man. In other words, it doesn't matter if the government leaves you alone so that you have freedom of speech. It doesn't matter if the government leaves you and your guns alone. Um, If the the point of freedom is to lead a good life and you can't provide for your family because of uh, an economic hardship, then what good is that freedom? Uh, So a necessitous man is not a free man. That was core to Roosevelt's constitutional uh, vision. And then you don't just see this in terms of Roosevelt saying in his speeches that uh, we need to reinterpret the preamble in ways that do a better job of including the working class. We see it being reflected from the public back to uh, Roosevelt. So here's this wonderful quote from an unemployed uh, farmer in the South uh, named George Dobbin who says, Roosevelt is the only president we ever had that thought the Constitution belonged to the poor man too. The way they've been reading it, it seemed like they thought it said, him that's got the money shall have the rights to life, freedom, and happiness. Yes, sir, it took Roosevelt to read in the Constitution and find out that them folks way back yonder that was uh, made it was talking about the poor man right along with the rich man. Uh, I love this quote for uh, a number of um, reasons, Um, and uh, one is that, um, you know, you just have to sort of ignore the, um, once you sort of get past the issues with uh, grammar and stuff in Mr. Dobbin's speech, the point he's making is actually quite sophisticated. He doesn't exactly quote um, from the Declaration of Independence where they talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but he gets it pretty much right by saying that there are rights to life, freedom, and happiness. And by the way, Roosevelt incorporated the Declaration of Independence all the time into uh, his understanding of uh, what the Constitution should be doing to help ordinary people. And then um, you know, George Dobbin thinks, well, wait a second, This isn't some new um, uh, socialist change to the way that uh, the American government is being run. Um, To Dobbin, it was that uh, what Roosevelt did was to discover that this text that had been around for 150 years at the time um, did protect them and that the the founders wanted it to protect uh, working class people. And it was Roosevelt who made that vision come to life. We can also see uh, a uh, understanding of uh, the New Deal being constitutionally significant if we look at the results of um, public opinion polls. So what we have here is uh, pretty strong evidence of bipartisan support for federal regulation of the economy. And so we have um, two uh, axes here. Down at the bottom, we have the x-axis, where we see uh, who people had voted for in 1936, whether it was President Roosevelt or the Republican candidate Alf Landon. And then on the y-axis we have uh, what's labeled the predicted probability of support. All you need to do is think of that as the percentage of Roosevelt voters, the percentage of Landon voters who favored these different things. So uh, a one would mean 100% of people agreed uh, with this policy issue. Zero would mean zero, and 0.5 would mean 50%. So what do we see here? Uh, what we see is a majority of both Republicans and Democrats supported all of these different policies, um, whether it was uh, being in support of labor unions, um, uh, agriculture supports, uh, farm subsidies, social security, uh, the regulation of the stock market through the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, the providing of minimum wages in the Federal Labor Standards Act. Um, And by the way, this is important, not just because these policies were popular, not just because these policies were popular on a bipartisan basis, But all of these policies either were struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court or would have been struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court if it hadn't been for the switch in time that saved nine. It's not enough that uh, I think that uh, for for me to say that the New Deal was significant in, in terms of the growth of federal power. To really understand the constitutional debates of this era, we also need to be talking about the separation of powers. And here we see another political cartoon where Roosevelt um, is playing the role of the Old Testament um, character Samson, um, who uh, is and and he's he's uh, the the separation of powers is being represented as you know three columns outside of uh, a temple, and Roosevelt has already destroyed legislative balance because. He's made Congress subservient to his will, and through the court packing plan, he's trying to do the same thing to the federal judiciary. To understand why Roosevelt would want to do this, um, we have to understand the difference between how the founders viewed the separation of powers and how more modern uh, thinkers, including Roosevelt, saw the separation of powers. The founders lived in a Newtonian universe, uh, this idea that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? Newton uh, you know, was the, the one who was talking about gravity. Um, and so um, the founders thought that a well designed constitution that splits power between three governments, the three branches of government, would prevent dictatorship. And it wouldn't just prevent dictatorship, it would ensure a well-ordered, well ordered, well running machine. Um, where, you know, um, good legislation would be passed, but bad legislation uh, would not. By the time Roosevelt comes around, he's growing up in the intellectual age of Charles Darwin, an evolution where the guiding principle is adapt or go extinct, survival of the fittest. And from Roosevelt's perspective, checks and balances were um, actually a danger. Checks and balances could actually increase the probability of dictatorship because they were an impediment to getting needed change in place. That if the Depression lingered on and on because there couldn't be an inter-branch agreement over the constitutionality of the New Deal, the American people would grow so angry that they would um, give Roosevelt the permission to be a true dictator. Um, And so Roosevelt just uh, wanted to find new, just like... He wanted the federal government to be doing new things. He wanted them to be doing them in a new way. The public was aware of this aspect of the debate too. Um, So there's this uh, lovely uh, letter uh, written by uh, Mary Ashbrook of uh, Philadelphia to the president. She writes this um, uh, immediately after President Roosevelt had given one of his legendary fireside chats And in that fireside chat, Roosevelt had tried to persuade the public to endorse court packing. Mary Ashbrook said, uh, no, that uh, we needed to maintain traditional norms of the separation of powers. She wrote, Mr. President, I urge you to let the Supreme Court alone. The considered judgment of the people through the orderly process of amendment is the nation's safeguard, even at the expense of time. Nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. We can also see this reflected in public opinion polls. Uh, So on the uh, y-axis, going from the top to the bottom of the screen, uh, you can see uh, how Republicans, Democrats, socialists, and independents, um, what opinions they have. I also have people of different socioeconomic standings uh, from above average to poor uh, people and those who are receiving uh, government benefits. And then finally, Uh, at the very bottom are people who think that the Constitution um, needs to be made easier to amend. And and indeed, we do have the hardest Constitution in the world uh, to amend. Um, So, uh, And then going from left to right, we once again have this predicted probability where um, 0.5 means that 50% 50 of people uh, would support a given policy. But then within each row, you're going to see two different dots, a solid one and a hollow one. The solid dot is the percentage of people who support court packing. A hollow one is the percentage of people who support a constitutional amendment to overturn conservative Supreme Court cases. And in almost every instance, what you will find is the constitutional amendment is the more popular of the two options. It is more popular amongst Republicans and Democrats It is more popular among socialists and independents across the different um, socioeconomic statuses. Even people who think the Constitution is too hard to amend are more likely to favor a constitutional amendment compared to their level of support for court packing. So court packing isn't all that popular. Um, You know, Democrats are uh, about 60% likely, uh, 60% of Democrats favor court packing, Um, But Republicans are dead set against it. Socialists aren't all that enthusiastic. Uh, Independents are fairly strongly against it. Even people who are poor uh, or who are receiving government benefits aren't particularly in favor of court packing. Um, People who want the Constitution to be made easier to amend uh, are in favor of court packing, but they're even more excited about the possibility of a constitutional amendment. In other words, they want to preserve the traditional uh, separation of powers and not make the judiciary subservient to the executive branch.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: But core packing wasn't the only uh, time where Roosevelt tried to challenge uh, traditional constitutional norms, separating powers across the branches. Another important controversy that gets uh, largely overlooked is uh, over Roosevelt's plan to uh, gain more control over the federal bureaucracy. Um, The debate was called the Executive Reorganization uh, Bill um, that he pushed, Um, and he wanted the the president himself to be sort of at the center of uh, the making of bureaucratic decisions, even amongst independent agencies agencies that are supposed to be removed from political oversight. And there was this unchecked, uh, this concern about unchecked presidential power uh, in the same way that court packing might lead to uh, unchecked presidential power. So just like the public was against him with court packing, the public was against him on executive reorganization. And just like with court packing, Congress said no. So Um, And then finally, for some evidence um, that the public really was um, not only following these debates but influential, I want you to take a look at this graph. Um, So we have three different votes. Um, The uh, court packing vote in the Senate, the vote on the executive reorganization plan in the Senate, and in the House. And for each of these three events that are displayed in bold, you'll have uh, two lines underneath it. The first one is the same in all three. It's this uh, capital letter acronym, DW nominate, And that is simply a way that political scientists calculate how liberal or conservative a member of Congress is. Um, and then the second row for each of these events has to do with some public opinion question on a, uh, that Gallup asked um, at the time, And what I did was I looked at the percentage of people in each state who uh, supported court packing uh, or supported um, uh, an aspect of the executive reorganization debate, uh, uh, expanding the civil service. Um, And then on another uh, Gallup poll, they asked about uh, whether uh, people favored the overall reorganization bill. And uh, then I wanted to look to see if home state public opinion affected the way the senators or the house members from that state actually voted on these issues. Now, so here's what I found. In, uh, for all three of these uh, controversies, conservative congressmen were more likely to oppose, right? Uh, uh, than uh, to vote in favor, it was more liberal congressmen who were voting in favor. And so down here on this um, x-axis, you see negative numbers and positive numbers. It's not important to know what these numbers represent. What's important is whether these uh, dots that I portray are to the left or to the right of the zero line. So um, if we go to the court packing vote in the Senate, what we see is uh, that as uh, DW DW nominates scores get larger, in other words, we are going further to the right, amongst members of Congress, they get less and less likely to vote in favor of court packing. However, if you go to home state court packing public opinion, as as court packing uh, opinion gets more and more favorable, members of Congress are more likely to vote yes on this bill. Same thing with reorganization in the Senate. Conservatives are strongly opposed uh, to voting for this um, proposal. But if you look at home state public opinion in states where um, support for the civil service is higher, you find senators who are more likely to vote in favor of the reorganization bill. And it's the same thing with the reorganization vote in the house. You have this left right divide um, between members of Congress over their ideology. Uh, But to a certain extent, uh, uh, this uh, ideological divide is mitigated based on what the voters back home want from their representatives. And then finally, there's one other uh, uh, controversy that we need to uh, consider here. And that is Roosevelt's decision to ignore the precedent that was um, set by President George Washington and run for a third and eventually a fourth term. Polls at the time showed that um, Roosevelt uh, was, uh, you know, the idea of even someone like Roosevelt getting a third term was not very popular. Um, and so um, the only way that uh, a lot of Americans were telling pollsters that they would be willing to vote for Roosevelt was if it looked like the United States was going to get involved in World War II. Um, and as it happened, you know, Uh, Germany invades Poland in September of 1939. The war started um, and uh, enough Americans were concerned about uh, America's participation in the war uh, that that uh, helped Roosevelt get reelected in 1940. In fact, I I would um, sort of argue that uh, if the Republicans had been more strategic in who they nominated for president in 1940, Roosevelt would have lost, Um, but they didn't nominate a uh an established leader with strong foreign policy credentials instead they nominated uh a businessman uh with no political experience who had been a registered democrat up until relatively recently uh uh, wendell wilkie uh, was his name and um you know roosevelt's main argument against wilkie was i can manage the war he can't So uh, once this norm was broken, once Roosevelt was successfully elected a third and eventually a fourth time, what he did not do was um, shatter that precedent um, by George Washington and make it fine for future presidents to break this norm too. Instead, here's where I would argue we get the only New Deal era constitutional amendment Um, It was proposed during Truman's um, presidency and ratified shortly thereafter, the 22nd Amendment, and imposed a two-term limit on running for president. So we don't get a constitutional amendment um, sanctioning the growth in federal power um, that occurred uh, during during the New Deal. But we do get a constitutional amendment trying to reaffirm a commitment to the way things had always been done in terms of balancing presidential power against congressional power against judicial power. So let's think a little bit about um, why this matters beyond having a better understanding of an important and interesting time in our past. Well, there I think there are three main takeaways um, that are relevant for today. One is, I think the fact that uh, there weren't that many New Deal constitutional amendments, the only one we get is over term, power, uh, term limits, is a problem. Um, we have an ongoing ambivalence over how much power the federal government legitimately has or should have. Um, and I, I think that the, uh, the lack of a New Deal constitutional amendment is one of the reasons why the Tea Party is such a major force in modern American politics. If there had been a New Deal era constitutional amendment saying that uh, the federal government had an obligation to regulate the economy, had the power to establish a welfare state, uh, it would have taken that issue out of uh, the possibility of modern political uh, debate. It would be no longer open for discussion, just like getting rid of free speech is um, not open for discussion because it's written into the text of the constitution. And um, uh, this is actually a fairly common thing. If you look at constitutions in other parts of the world, you will see them uh, uh, including in the powers that are given to the national government, the power to create uh, a welfare state. In fact, um, if you look at American state constitutions, you see uh, provisions in there where the government makes promises um, to do certain things for its citizens. For example, in most state constitutions, um, there is a right to education, right? The government has an obligation to take you from kindergarten all the way through 12th uh, grade uh, and for that education uh, to be uh, adequate uh, and equitable. Um, The second um, takeaway is, um, you know, I think we need to really go back and reflect on these two different perspectives about the separation of powers. The founders and their nice, neat Newtonian universe that they lived in where they thought that uh, every action would have an equal and opposite reaction and that would keep the system flowing nicely and it would never get out of whack and it would never allow a dictator versus Roosevelt's uh, understanding of separation of powers creating conflict and conflict that couldn't be uh, resolved quickly uh, would uh, potentially lead to the downfall of democracy. Um, and so I think we uh, need to um, seriously ask ourselves uh, about uh, who was right in their understanding of how the government was operating, how or what kind of government would be enabled by this separation of powers. The current Congress is on track to being perhaps the least productive in our history, And that's not just a one-off occurrence, it is uh, the result of a sort of decade-long trend and Congress passing fewer and fewer laws because there's more and more gridlock. Uh, And if Congress isn't getting the job done, it creates this power vacuum and that vacuum is filled using executive orders and both political parties are more than happy to let their presidents uh, uh, use executive orders more and more. And then finally, uh, the the Supreme Court uh, was not nearly as aggressive in striking down laws regulating the economy after the 1930s um, but they uh, have continued to um, uh, play a role in taking certain uh, issues off the table uh, by uh, saying that they are unconstitutional and I, I'm not uh, I don't want to, to uh, be uh, I want to clarify something, you know, I don't think that uh, people's rights should be up for debate. Uh, but the, the problem is, um, you know, when certain issues uh, are ruled on by the court, that ends the public discussion of them. And so what we have now is a democracy where um, public debate uh, isn't really being translated into policy in the way that the framers had intended. We have a Congress that isn't passing a lot of legislation. Uh, we have to wait once every four years before we could potentially change who the president is. And they are the ones who are um, issuing all these executive orders. And, um, uh, and so, you know, we, uh, we have this uh, set of separation of powers that is creating conflict uh, and not allowing uh, the, the public's will uh, to be translated into policy. Well, why is this the case? Why has uh, gridlock increased so much? My hypothesis is that the growth of federal power, one of the legacies of the New Deal, uh, and the growth of federal spending that comes with the growth in federal power creates an incentive for leaders um, to engage in uh, gridlock and polarization and abuse checks and uh, balances. Uh, I have a a quote here from the uh, political scientist John Roche who does a play on words with this famous quote from Niccolo Machiavelli. The Machiavelli quote is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Roche says, no, 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 no. Power corrupts and the prospect of losing power corrupts absolutely. Because the federal government is doing more things, people don't want, uh, they they really want to be in control of doing those things. And if the only way they can control the process is to abuse Mm -hmm. checks and balances, and that might explain uh, some of the modern polarization and gridlock. So, um, I think that this is a sort of ironic consequence of New Deal era public opinion, that on the one hand, the public was quite comfortable uh, uh, with uh, expanding uh, the kinds of things the federal government did, uh, but thought that the best way to handle that transition safely would be to maintain traditional separation of powers, um, they thought that they were um, doing the best, uh, the best combination of things to prevent dictatorship. Uh, and I think it's possible that instead what they did was they laid the seeds for uh, the modern gridlock polarization and cynicism that define modern American politics. Um, but I don't want to end on a sort of down note. These first two uh, main takeaways are uh, kind of uh, depressing, um, and But I want us to also to keep in mind that if we could have calm, reasoned uh, debates over big issues, have those debates uh, in constitutional terms, if we could have that kind of a public discussion where the family gathers around the radio and listens to the president, uh, listens to other public officials who made nationally broadcast radio speeches, If we could have those kinds of constitutional conversations, then we can absolutely have it now. Uh, Americans in the 1930s were living through very desperate economic times, but they didn't panic. They were living at a time where higher education uh, was very hard to come by. A lot more Americans today uh, have access to more education. Uh, We have access to more information Right and But despite all those barriers back in the 1930s, you had this very robust, very sober um, public debate. So um, I, uh, that's, that's all I have for you guys, and uh, I, I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope this helps uh, clarify some of the uh, concepts uh, in the reading, and I am happy to uh, take your questions at this point. Okay, it looks like we've got something from Carmen. I have a question about why the public's anger during court packing seems so directed at Roosevelt, when the Supreme Court also seemed to be overstepping its power. Uh, That's a great question, um, Carmen. And, um, you know, there was plenty of polling that was done in the 1930s. And what it found was, um, it was quite clear that the public was not happy about how the Supreme Court was um, handling the New Deal. Um, and so a strong majority of Americans said that the New Deal should not be so conservative in its handling of the New Deal. And in fact, a majority of Americans thought that something had to be done about the Supreme Court. Where they disagreed was they just didn't think that that something um, should be court packing. And instead, when Gallup would ask about um, constitutional amendments that would overturn the Supreme Court's precedence, People were just a lot more enthusiastic about that as the way forward. So I think there was um, public anger, um, but uh, that anger wasn't sufficient um, to sort of throw out uh, a a, a pretty important constitutional principle along the way. Uh, We got another question from Jessica. Uh, You talked about uh, Trump changing his uh, behavior uh, due to an upcoming election, do you find any significant evidence that showed uh, that Roosevelt did the same thing either before 1936 uh, or uh, 1940? Uh, yeah, we. So, I mean, we have um, seen, uh, uh, you know, a, a large growth in executive orders um, uh, under um, uh, the uh, uh, the last uh, uh, few presidents. Uh, we've certainly seen. Um, uh, you know all sorts of um, games uh, being played uh, by both political parties to take advantage of the timing of uh, elections. Um, uh, so you know we, you know, President Trump is trying to time the va- uh, the release of the COVID vaccine to be just before the election to sort of benefit from that. And even FDR would engage in some of those kinds of um, uh, shenanigans. He um, scheduled a vote on. Um, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, which uh, for the first time set a federal minimum wage, um, and he, he set that vote for the spring of 1938, knowing that uh, just a few months after that, Congress would have to go back home and campaign and get reelected, uh, and uh, that you know the, the idea of um, providing a minimum wage for workers was very popular. And so conservatives in Congress who didn't like the idea nevertheless felt pressure to vote in favor of that law uh, because uh, it was so popular back home. Uh, Rahman, uh, you ask, do you think that if a Gallup poll was conducted today, uh, would more people be in favor uh, uh, of court packing? Well, there actually has been um, some uh, polling done Uh, I'm sure there's more being done like right now as we speak um, because of um, what's been in the news uh, recently involving the death of Justice Ginsburg. Um, But because this was an issue in the primaries, there was some polling done uh, last September. And what it showed was uh, most Americans are once again opposed to court packing. Uh, that uh, Democrats are slightly more in favor of it than Republicans, which was also true in the 1930s. Um, But, you know, um, when it comes to norms uh, about politics, uh, you know, if you fail to change a norm once what you might end up doing is making sure that in the future, it's even harder to challenge it again. And I think that's one of the lasting legacies of Roosevelt and uh, court packing was um, if he couldn't sell it to the American people, I don't think there's a politician alive today in either party who can sell it to the American people. Um, the the Supreme court occupies a, uh, a place in the American consciousness. Uh, they are, they are the, Um, most popular of the three branches Um, and uh, any attack on that, even if um, the justification seems pretty strong, um, the American people are willing to think from sort of a long-term perspective and the long-term loss of legitimacy that could be, uh, that the court could endure might not justify a sort of temporary um, victory by readjusting the court uh, to be uh, more liberal or conservative by creating new seats. And in fact, that was a very common argument that you saw when people wrote uh, President Roosevelt in the 1930s. They would say, look, I voted for you. I'm a fan of the New Deal. I don't like what the court is doing. I don't even think that court packing would be a bad idea for you because I trust you um, to be wise in terms of who you appoint to the court, um, but once you uh, uh, once you're allowed to do court packing, what happens when the next guy gets elected president? Do we go from a court from nine to fifteen to twenty five to you know seventy three? Um, and so the, the you know people were concerned about this um, this norm eroding and then court packing become co- commonplace. But the flip side, as I sort of mentioned, was that because um, Roosevelt tried and failed with court packing, it means that it is considered even less legitimate of a tactic today. And I think that as uh, additional polling starts to come in on this issue, um, I think we're going to find uh, to a greater and greater extent uh, that the, uh, Roosevelt's failure um, has sort of set the, the tone uh, for uh, the modern debate over court packing. Anybody else? I don't know if your silence means that uh, uh, the, the material uh, was uh, intuitive or you're just so confused. Uh, but anyways, I, uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed reading the chapters. I hope you uh, enjoyed the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the lecture. Uh, I certainly enjoyed answering your, your questions. Uh, and so, uh, thank you very much, and uh, I uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c span.org.